Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The 2016 presidential campaign is probably different than any other before it. The two major party nominees, Democrat Hillary Clinton and Republican Donald Trump, are the most unpopular nominees ever, or at least that's what the polls tell us. Many voters say they support one candidate or the other because they can't stand the other. And in a polarized country, supporters of both candidates are demonized by supporters of the other in personal ways many times. So what are voters saying? A team of reporters from the York Daily Record set out to find out across Pennsylvania, one of the key states in this year's election. And we are joined by those three reporters today. Ed Mayhem, uh, who is reporter and investigative team with the Daily Record, columnist Mike Argeno, and photographer Paul Kuhnel, who, Kuehler, sorry, Paul, uh, with the York Daily Record. If you have a question or a comment, uh, give us a call during this segment, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Welcome, gentlemen. Uh, from when did when did you get back? By the way, uh, we returned from Pittsburgh last uh, Wednesday evening. All right, so we... you've had time to catch up. Uh, you don't have jet lag or anything. Oh no, not at all. <laughs> well, good, good. Although I'm still trying to recover from getting lost, as you wouldn't believe in Pittsburgh. It's very <laughs> difficult heard, city I, to drive. I in. saw the video where you were complaining about driving in Pittsburgh. But yeah, uh, I think I went to, through the Fort Pitt Tunnel three times <laughs> just trying to get to Point Park. Uh... The idea behind this. Well, first of all, what is the series called? And what was the idea behind it? Uh, so part of the idea was Pennsylvania is going to be important in this election. The Trump campaign has spent a lot of time here. Uh, Hillary Clinton and, and her surrogates have spent some time here as well. Uh, and we wanted to get a sense of what was going on across the state, just beyond your county, which has been solidly Republican for, for decades. Uh, so I traveled to Luzerne County, which has, gone, which has been sort of a swing county. It's it's kind of been a bellwether uh, since like the 1930s. It's gone the same way as the state. And then Paul and Mike, they traveled east to west to get a sort of a broad spectrum of from Philly to, to Pittsburgh. And obviously we're going to hear all three of your experiences and your observations. But uh, looking back on it, Mike, was there anything that really stuck out to you on the trip? Well, the thing that surprised me the most was when we headed into uh, Lancaster County, where we're east of Lancaster, an Amish country, and we saw a billboard that um, advertised something called Amish Pack. Mm -hmm. So I, just, I looked this thing up, and the Amish have a super pack, which kind of surprised me. I had no idea that the Amish would, would be that heavily involved in, in the electoral process. And that uh, the Amish Pack has a website, which also kind of surprised me, because I didn't think that the Amish you know, were big users of uh, you know, the internet. So... That was kind of surprising to me. That was one of the things that just kind of jumped out at me. Yeah, we had uh, a story about that just the other day. The Trump campaign is uh, consciously making an effort to uh, woo the Amish vote. Paul, well, what about you? Go ahead, the billboard. Mike. The billboard said that you know, Trump is just like you. You know, just like the Amish, which is again, I've. I, I was just having difficulty wrapping my head around that. That just, sounds like a yeah. movie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> put Trump in Amish country. Yeah. Paul, what about you? Well, it's interesting when you when you cross the state, you kind of know the historical division of you know moving from Democrat to Republican to Democrat, and um, that was the interesting thing about Gap. There was like a a wall you hit and you move through that Gap, Pennsylvania. Gap, Pennsylvania in County. Yeah, right. And we we came upon a um, uh, Trump stand. In Paradise, I think it was right, right yeah. past Gap. They were selling hats and uh, T-shirts and stuff like that, and that was our, our pretty much first contact with that after the whole Philadelphia area. And it was just, it was interesting talking to the, the cast of characters there, you know, that were really passionate about 
you know who they were supporting. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's start. You, you have some you have some audio of uh, you know both of the, you know all three of you. Your, I'm going to start with the. And I don't have everything here, but uh, this is uh, your day in Philadelphia, and just a, a, a couple voters that uh, you spoke to. Let's start with this. Her husband used to be the president, so she have a low response. When November come, I'm a that's a trolley, by the way. Um, I guess it's the better of two evils. So what are your thoughts on Donald Trump? Well, I never heard any how he really feels about any policies. He doesn't talk about education, social security, health care. Social Security is probably not going to affect anybody in his family, so he probably doesn't care about it. Health care, they probably can afford it, so they don't care about that. And education, they go to private schools, so they don't care about our public school system. And right now in Philadelphia, our school system is failing, so like, we really need people to pay attention to education. Making America great again. I mean, I didn't know it wasn't great anymore. All right, so that was in Philadelphia. No surprise that uh, at least those two voters uh, were Hillary Clinton supporters and anti-Trump. Did you find any Trump supporters in Philadelphia? Um, No. No, okay. (laughs) Didn't think so. Uh, Even once we got out into the (laughs) Philly suburbs, we didn't. We stopped in Villanova. We stopped uh, Paoli. um, Coatesville. Coatesville, yeah. yeah, And and it was pretty much solidly, you know, the people we spoke to anyway. We're, we're all Hillary supporters until we got, like Paul said, to uh, to Gap. What was it? What were the reasons? Well, there's well, f- the, the the main reason is he, he, she isn't Donald Trump. Mm. You know, that's that's what struck me. That um, um, there, you know, they did speak, you know, admirably of, about Hillary Clinton, saying that they thought that her experience and her demeanor, you know, made her fit for the office. But mostly, um, what we heard from. The Hillary supporters in that area was, was that you know she isn't Donald Trump. He so was, it was more of an anti-Trump support rather than a pro-Hillary. Correct. Mm-hmm. Paul, what were you going to say? Oh, we stopped in an old furniture uh, store that had been around since 1912. Sure, talks. Yeah. Sure, talks. is my hometown. So okay, I recognize that. And, and it, what struck me when we were driving through is you see this neon sign from 1952, and you know, like, and it's a, still a furniture store, privately mm-hmm. owned furniture, and you're like, well, that these people have to have some opinion. They've been here forever. And um, they were not Trump supporters because of the uh, his the business practices. You know, they couldn't put their heads around how they've had this business for decades. You know, in this town and how how that works. Yeah, I know I know the sure talks personally, so I wasn't surprised when I saw that. Uh, all right, now let's go. We're, this is west of York County, and you guys traveled on Route 30, so I want to play a couple uh, couple Trump supporters here, and we'll go from there. People around here in the in the uh, rural area are Trump the whole way. Yeah. I couldn't take you around here within a 20, 25 mile radius and show you a Hillary sign. There ain't none. It's uh, just a shame the, paint, the state of Pennsylvania wind up going Democrat because of Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and everybody else. Of course, uh, we just get lost in the shelves. Yeah. City people. And country people, they just don't think alike. They just do not and will not. I mean, it's kind of all in your upbringing, and that ain't the way they were upright. You know? But, yeah, they both have their, you know, their issues, but I'm, I'm going to go with him. 
and him being Trump, obviously. All right, so talk about those two. Well, the the first fellow was a guy who worked in a, a sporting goods store. He worked at the gun counter at a gun shop. And, Where uh, was yeah, that, by the way? That was just uh, west of Breezewood. Yep, yeah, Breezewood. Just west of Breezewood. It's uh, what was the place called, Paul? I can't remember. It was a Juniata Trading Company. Yeah, it's a on the side of the road, a huge place. And uh, what well, struck me about that guy is that he did, you know, point out the, the differences between the urban and rural areas, and it's you know that they don't. He claims they don't get representation, but then, you know, once you get out of you can kind of see it as you're driving on 30 because you're in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia suburbs. It's very densely populated. Once you get west of, um, say, Gettysburg, west of Chambersburg, um, it gets very, very sparse. You know, you're up in the mountains. There aren't a whole lot of people around. Um, and this fellow, like a lot of the people that we spoke to who were Trump supporters in, you know, the more rural areas, um, many of them mentioned uh, Second Amendment rights as being very important to them and that they had um, heard that Hillary Clinton wanted to take their guns away from them or make it, one one guy told us that, you know, Hillary Clinton wants to make it illegal for you to have a gun in your house. And, you know, I asked him, where did you hear that? And he says, well, I just heard it. And that's, I... That word of mouth always gets you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Who was the, the woman? Who was that? Was the igloo? Yeah, there was a woman at the igloo. Uh, we... She sounded like she she her vote was based on what other people were saying around yeah. her. So it was sort of, you know, you're submerged in this, and therefore it makes sense. Mm. Yeah. We have a call here from Karen in Lancaster. Karen, you're on the air. Hello, Karen. Are you there? Uh, well, one of the things Karen uh, wanted to say was that driving through York County. She said she was shocked about the number of Trump supporters and wanted to know if this is everywhere in the state. And I think her question kind of, and Ed, you can join in on this too. Um, her question, I think I talked about how this campaign was unique. And one of the things that you find is that supporters are one of one or the other find it hard to believe. They just can't comprehend. They can't understand why one, why someone is voting for the other that yeah. they're not supporting. Did you find that? Yes, and it's it's almost as if the, the two camps live in completely different realities. You know, it's like there are two universes, two worlds that have their own rules of physics. You know, it's just com completely different worlds, and it's there's just no common ground there, it seems. They either, you know, you're either for us or against us, and you either believe that you know, Donald Trump is a business genius and Hillary Clinton is the spawn of Satan, or you believe that, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump is the next coming of Mussolini and, you know, Hillary Clinton is going to be the greatest president since Lincoln. You know, it's it's uh, it's just a, a really, really deep divide. I did uh, see on one of your videos that there was a guy who uh, said that he thought Trump could be the next Reagan. Yeah, I, I you know, I've, I've, I'm not going to get started on Reagan. I've, I've, very different views on Reagan than a lot of people, but, you know, so I'm not gonna get started on that. But I don't. I, I can kind of see the same kind of uh, phenomenon happening here that, that Reagan had struck, you know, tapped into this streak of populism and nationalism that Trump seems to be hitting on too, and, mm. and Trump seems to be playing that card very, very well with the people you know, that, that support him, with his core core supporters, because no matter what he seems to do or say. You know, they they love the guy. He could say well, he says one thing one day, the exact opposite thing the next day, and no one, none of his supporters seem to notice this. You know, yeah. it's just very strange. 
and one thing with we see a lot of signs in York County for Donald Trump. Like I've been, ha- I was at the Dover Fair like several weeks ago, and there was a guy. He was a delegate to the Republican National Convention. He basically got he spotted his own money, or somebody else spotted money for him to have his own Trump sign, so he could give them out at the Dover Fair. There and Scott Wagner, state senator from York County. Um, he's been compared to Donald Trump and sort of his brashness and business background. He has like put up money to to get a lot of Trump signs in the area. I think he, Scott Wagner, had complained that the Romney campaign didn't have enough signs here. So there, there is, I mean, there the the Matt Jansen, the Dover, the guy in Dover. He he's very he was not working with the campaign. It was all sort of driven on his own, and, and Scott Wagner has taken his own efforts. Um, so you see a lot of that. There has you, see, you read reports about that there hasn't been the same organization on the Trump side compared to Hillary Clinton. Um, so you're seeing a lot of kind of grassroots, I guess, would be the best way to say it. You know, and I've heard many people say that, and I think that's one our listener Karen was talking about too. You seem to see many more Trump signs than you do Clinton signs. Now that is not a good barometer for support. But a lot of people, including Trump himself, because he bases his support on how many people attend his rallies and how excited they are and that kind of thing. But you do tend to see, at least in this part of the state, and I don't know what you guys saw um, in other parts of the state. Well, what's interesting is, I mean, that when you're when you're basically shooting a probe across, you know, Pennsylvania and we have two sets of eyes, that's one of the first indicators you're looking for, you know, is is this political signs, whether they mean anything or not. But And it was interesting because... We did not see any large Hillary signs, you know, Clinton signs anywhere along the way. Um, there were yard signs here and there, and after that gap point, you know, there there nothing. was nothing until hmm. we saw some yard signs in Greensburg. Yeah, and yeah, once you start to get in the Pittsburgh, uh, Allegheny County area. Uh, which tends to go Democrat as, as well. You maybe saw a few. All right, before we get to Ed and Luzerne County, which, uh, you know, as Ed said in the beginning of the program, could be a bellwether for what's happening in, in Pennsylvania. Um, you started in Philadelphia. Where did you end? Uh, Point Park in Pittsburgh. Okay. So if you were to kind of summarize the trip and what you heard, and you, know, you touched on this earlier, uh, how would you do that? Uh, Paul, you want to handle that one? I don't. I, well, I wrote, I wrote, you know, thirty-seven hundred words about it. So I, 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 I want to take up the be, next couple you, of you hours. Put, you, you put know, that I behind can, you, Mike. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I, I don't think it's hard to summarize something from a trip like that because we're sort of just a random sampling, you know, going through. But I mean, the Trump supporters are very passionate about what they're saying, so they're in your face and they're saying it. Um, the Clinton supporters are kind of more recessive. Um, and then there's all these people that are really so burned out from this election. I heard that. So what you didn't see were the people that said, I don't want to talk to you. You know, and, and we went through hundreds of them, you know. And and those would be the interesting people that, you know, talk to you if they would talk to you. Um, to kind of, and that was, maybe that's more the story is that silent group that wouldn't talk. It, was there a reason they wouldn't talk or is it just that they were burned out on, on the election? I, some of us, you'd start talking about the election, and they would get um, they'd get kind of an expression on their face, and you could kind of tell that you know either one they didn't want to be quoted about it, um, or two they were just burned out about it. It's hard to say what you know they were actually what was making them do that. So, so, yeah, people were nice about it; they didn't right, you know, just right, tell us to get right. lost. They just said they just cared not to speak about it. You touched on a couple of the issues, but um, for those who were 
and putting aside those who were who were saying I'm for this candidate because it's not the other, but issues. What were the issues most important for the Clinton supporters? Um, <laughs> it's hard to say. Mostly that she wasn't Donald Trump. Um, That's a shame. Uh, it is a shame. Um, and they, they, I think a lot of the people that we spoke to are, you know, were, were Democrats, of course, and, and probably left leaning. Uh, and they talking policies too. I mean, the, you know, they they want to hear what a person is going to do, you know, and that that was that was a big part of it. They, they weren't so interested in listening to the emotional part of the stump speech. They what wanted about, to hear. What about Trump supporters? Um, they were all over the place. I mean, it was, uh, you know, a Second Amendment that you know, Hillary's the devil. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. pretty much that. I mean, and. Uh, we got a lot of people speaking about the Second Amendment, and a lot of people um, talking about Trump's business experience, as if you know that's supposed to be his, his main qualification for being president. Now, you guys—it seemed odd to me, though, that you know, I, on both sides, almost, but more so on the Trump side, a lot more on the Trump side, is that there just seems to be a, a lot of misinformation and a lot of things that people seem to believe that don't seem to be true. Like and, what? Well, that, I mean, you said earlier about the guy who said he heard Hillary was not going to let you keep a gun in your house. Yeah, that and that um, the Democrats were going to make it uh, illegal not to vote, you know, because they wanted people because they figure if more people vote, I guess that would support, you know, and, and favor the them. And, and the change thing, too. I mean, yeah, you know, gasoline and a torch. We don't know where it's going to go, mm. you know, so. That was one of the surprising things from Trump supporters that we heard is that you know, one, one fellow said that, you know, he may be a loose cannon, but maybe we need a loose cannon. Wow, and it's 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 almost like you know we have to, you know, destroy the village to save it. You know that kind mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. that kind of thinking, and it just seemed very very, I don't know, kind of odd. You know. So Ed Ed Mann, let me turn to you now. Sure. You went to Luzerne County. Did you get the short end of the stick here, or the straw, or something? Uh, <laughs> these guys got to go the whole state, and you got one county. Uh, but anyway, Luzerne County. Why did you choose Luzerne County, and uh, what did you hear? As I mentioned before, somewhat of a bellwether in past years. Uh, in in the primary, it was the county that did the best for Donald Trump. I uh, got he got like seventy seven percent of the vote there. Um, it's, a, it's a historically Democratic area. So it seemed like an area where something interesting was happening uh, in terms of whether there was a shift at all uh, towards Donald Trump. So that, that was sort of the, that was the reason we, we chose Luzerne. Mm -hmm. uh, and w so what did you hear? What were some of the things that you heard about Trump? So we talked to yeah, we talked to we spent uh, I spent two days up there. Uh, we talked to you, you talked to a variety of voters. But one of the more most interesting guys was this man, Edward Harry. He had been a Democrat for decades. He used to work for a union. He had photos of him shaking hands with Hillary Clinton and Al Gore. Um, and he, I think since his retirement, pretty much, he's just become to believe that the political system is corrupt on both sides. Uh, he didn't vote for Romney or Obama. He didn't vote for Obama or McCain. Um, and so with Trump, he was just hoping, you know, there are some policy things he thinks he'll do, negotiate better trade deals, um, secure the border, like make it do more vetting for immigrants coming into the country. But mainly that if he would be happy if Donald Trump just exposes some corruption in the system already, that's already happening. Why would Donald Trump expose corruption? I mean, that goes along with him saying the system is rigged. Uh, his, his view is that Donald Trump is an outsider and that you he's the only one in a position to do it. He, he, you know, he, he said, I mean, he has 
he didn't praise Trump too much, but just that he thought Trump was positioned. He didn't trust. He doesn't trust the Edward Harry. This guy didn't trust the Republicans. He didn't trust Democrats, and he thought Donald Trump has been outside of both of those. So he's the only one in a position to to actually take an outsider's view. What about some of the other people you spoke to? So yeah. So what are some of the other people? Um, I heard. You know, I talked to stopped at a pizza shop in Hazleton. That that it was an area that's seen a lot of immigration over the years. Um, talked to a voter there, a woman there, a Trump supporter. She was twenty nine. Uh, she said. She went to Penn State Hazleton. She had seen a lot of her friends leave the area, she said. Um, and immigration, when she talked about it, wasn't like her top issue. She talked about the economy. And it, she said it just seemed, she voted for Obama in 2008. And she said it just, she said all that hope and dream stuff sounded awesome when she was 21. But now it has just seemed like the country's been stagnant economically. Um, and then I talked to other voters, and something that comes up a lot was just, you know, something that's not, how direct of an impact it is on their lives is questionable, but like the Black Lives Matter movement, people would would see some of these these social issues and some of these uh, issues happening, protests happening in cities, and and feel like there's uh, th- yeah there's there's they're objecting to to what's happening and and talk about um, I mean the one guy I talked to blamed Barack Obama saying he encourages unrest, talk, talking about racial divides. Uh, so that, that was some of the things. I noticed that you wrote that uh, a few of the people that you talked to who were Trump supporters felt like they had to justify their support. Yeah, yeah. People would, people would say unprompted, like, I'm not a racist. Uh, people would say unprompted. I was at a rally uh, in your county, actually. The, um, the Congressman Lou Berletta from Luzerne County was, was down there, too. Um, but people were talking about unprompted. A guy starts saying his neighbors seemed like they were scared to put up Trump signs because they thought people would think so- something of them. Congressman Scott Perry says said that everybody thinks you're primitive or something backward in some way if you are supporting Donald Trump. So there is, um, you know, w- there is a sense of, and we, you know, when we talked about the Trump signs issue. I mean, there is a, a, you know, some Trump supporters are very passionate. Hillary Clinton has been leading in the polls in Pennsylvania, so there's a question about whether. Um, you have a, a smaller majority that, or smaller minority that's passionate about a can, like more vocal about a candidate than the majority of voters. We have a caller who here who wanted to know. Um, you know, we're hearing a lot about Trump and Clinton. Did uh, the third party candidates, uh, Gary Johnson or Jill Stein, come up at all? Yeah, um, I talked to I, got, I talked to a Republican. He was like uh, in his late twenties in Luzerne County. I was at the Luzerne County Fair. He stopped at a table to pick up a, a yard sign for a state representative, and then I started talking to him. And right away, he said he's not voted for Donald Trump, and then he because he just doesn't take him seriously. Um, and then he said he's not voting for Hillary; he's going to vote for uh, Gary Johnson. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, we're almost out of time for this portion of the show. I want to thank you guys for being with us today. And the stories in the paper and online, where can they? Uh, when have they? Well, Put it this way: How can they get to them to read? How can our listeners get to them to read what you had to, about your experiences and see your videos? YDR.com. They're all up on online now. We've got videos with them all, um, and my story's been in print. I think Mike's is coming out this Sunday. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank uh, Mike Argento, Ed Mann, and Paul Kudler uh, from the York Daily Lyric. I'm sorry, Paul. I'm butchering your name. Paul's fine. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much for being with us today. Thank Thank you. you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
It is day five of WITF's fall fundraising campaign, and I'm joined by uh, Tim Lambert, WITF's multimedia news director. Tim, uh, we just saw f- each other a few minutes ago, but I'm glad that uh, you're on. <laughs> they finally talk. let me out. Yeah, and, and I finally get to do a pledge. A shift. little bit this afraid of that uh, you can come in during Smart Talk. That's and, right. Uh, it is a, a big time of year for us at WITF, but uh, just a perfect example of what we were talking about with the Daily Record reporters, and we'll be doing that throughout the month of October, talking with voters talking with candidates, but election time is a big time of year as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you've seen the dedication that NPR has made to covering the election. Uh, A team of reporters they've put together, including a former reporter at WITF, uh, Scott Detrow, uh, that have been covering the campaign for almost two years. Uh, It seems like 10 years, but it's two years. Um, But every day you've, you've heard coverage, you've heard perspectives. Today, David Green was talking to voters in Arizona all over the political spectrum. Um, So that's just part of the investment. And here locally, here on regional and state news, uh, we have election coverage. Katie Meyer's been following the candidates. Uh, Whenever they come to central Pennsylvania, we've worked with stations across the state in uh, bringing their coverage to you. If a candidate's in Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, WESA or WHYY sends those stories to us as well. So uh, what we're doing is we're trying to manage the money that uh, we have, the resources we have, the best way we can possible. And the York Daily Record, um, part of uh, a partner of WITF, along with the Chambersburg Public Opinion, the Hanover Evening Sun, uh, and the Lebanon Daily News. So uh, we're working with those reporters in those newsrooms. Our resources are what they are. We understand that, but we're also looking for better ways to use those dollars that you contribute, like now during our pledge campaign, and uh, bring you the best coverage possible. So we hope that you appreciate that, and we hope you make that contribution now. We have a goal of $500 before 10 o'clock to raise for Smart Talk. You can do that by going to WITF.org or calling 1-800-233-9. Four eight three. Yes, during Smart Talk, uh, only five hundred dollars. So uh, it's a small <laughs> goal, a small goal. But that's uh, one that, that we'd like to meet this morning. It's an important and, one, and all through uh, the fundraising campaign. But uh, if you do appreciate Smart Talk, what you do hear about the election, we're going to be talking about the natural gas drilling state impact. Pennsylvania reporter uh, Marie Cusick in just a few minutes. Something else that's unique: uh, you don't get the kind of comprehensive reporting on Pennsylvania's energy economy anywhere else than with State Impact uh, Pennsylvania and Marie uh, does such a fantastic job with that and uh, you know some, we're talking about a Supreme Court ruling last week that a lot of people may not understand the impact that has but that's what we're here to do is to bring that context to bring that information in that uh, our listeners can say you know what I didn't think of it that way or I haven't heard this anywhere else yeah and what's unique about State Impact Pennsylvania is it's covered Act 13 since the very beginning since it was enacted. I mean, for five years, uh, we've been on this story. This isn't a matter of a media organization dipping their toe in the water and, oh, here's a natural gas story. Let's cover this and then forget about it for five years. I mean, this is something we are dedicated to. This is something we've been investing resources in because we feel it's important to Pennsylvania. It's important to you. And for those who've been you know, talking about maybe, well, drilling's not in not in my backyard. All of a sudden, you have the pipeline debate here in central Pennsylvania coming in. And uh, so now it's important to central Pennsylvania, and, and State Impact has been there from the beginning in covering this issue. So we hope that's the kind of coverage you want. That's what you demand from a media organization. And we hope you make that contribution of $10 a month, a dollar a day, uh, $20 a month to WITF.org or 1-800-233-9483. Tim Lambert will speak to you again in just a few minutes. Absolutely. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I am Scott Lamar. Marcellus Shale Natural Gas Drilling took off in Pennsylvania about eight years ago. It's an industry
victory that was hailed by supporters as creating tens of thousands of jobs and turning Pennsylvania's economy around, while detractors said the industry was getting huge benefits from state government to the possible detriment of the state's environment. Eight years later, Pennsylvania still is missing some regulations for gas drilling, especially after a state Supreme Court ruling last week that struck down portions of Act 13, a 2012 law enacted by the legislature. State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick is here. Marie, we spoke just a few minutes ago, but welcome back. Uh, welcome to Smart Talk. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You know, one of the things that we do try to stay away from is calling uh, legislation, you know, House Bill 1132 or Senate Bill such and such. But Act 13 is one of those things. It encompasses a whole lot when it comes to um, it comes to natural gas drilling in Pennsylvania. What 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 is Act 13, and uh, what was it supposed to do? Yeah, so many people, you may have heard it called the impact fee law back when there's a big debate uh, about how to tax uh, the natural gas industry. Uh, Act 13 created the impact fee, uh, which is how we um, sort of tax the industry now. But um, Act 13 was basically a major overhaul of our oil and gas law. It passed in 2012 under former Republican Governor Tom Corbett. And we hadn't really modernized our oil and gas law uh, since the 80s. And we'd had, as you mentioned, we had this huge boom of Marcellus shale drilling, all these new companies coming into Pennsylvania, all this kind of activity. Um, So there really was a need to update the law, and that's that's what it did. It, it had all kinds of things in it besides the impact fee that people well, talk about. What are some of the highlights that it did have in it? Within, we, and we don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but what were some of the highlights? Um, so one of the big things was back when this all started, people um, had a lot of questions about, um, you know, people had water water contamination and complaints, and, and people weren't sure whether sometimes these problems were pre-existing or were they the result of gas development. So one of the big things the law did was create a presumption of liability for the drilling companies. I believe it was 2,500 feet um, if there was a problem within that area that the the, li- the presumption of liability would be on the gas company. From, from the well. Right. So that created a, a much more what, what they call baseline testing, which is, um, you know, before you go and, and do this activity, you want to know what the state of the water is. And then obviously, if there's a problem later, you can compare that against um, uh, what the water is now. So that was one of the big changes. So why was it challenged in court at all? And what happened in the big 2013 state Supreme Court ruling? Right. So most people paid attention to that. That was a, a big uh, ruling from the state Supreme Court in December 2013. And and the big controversy around the law was about how it handled zoning of oil and gas. Um, so the example, you know, some people find oil and gas development to be an unwelcome activity in their communities. So the example I always give is, uh, you know, say there's something you don't want in your community like a halfway house. Uh, well, already under the law, you can't use local zoning to just bar a halfway house or any activity. If it's a permitted use, you have to allow it somewhere. You can't just block it with your zoning. But what Act 13 did was it said that actually the state law preempts any local zoning and 
also, hey, local communities, you have to allow oil and gas development in every zoning district. So uh, local governments really felt like this was a major uh, stepping on their toes of, of the way they zone development because it, it really just said, we, we the state, are going to supersede your local authority. You have to allow it everywhere. And the state Supreme Court actually agreed with the local governments and environmental groups challenging it and said, no, you, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. So those those portions which restricted local zoning rights were struck down in 2013. All right. So last week, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling that came out last week, uh, what happened uh, last week's ruling? Right. So there were some other uh, narrow provisions of the law that these groups were challenging as well. Um, and, and what happened in 2013 was in the state Supreme Court, sent it back down to a lower court, and then it has worked its way back up to the state Supreme Court. Um, so these were really just sort of the leftover issues from the, the case. And, and one dealt with, uh, there were four main things. One, what, one provision of the law allowed gas companies to uh, use eminent domain uh, for natural gas storage purposes. And okay, the so to explain eminent domain. I think most people know what it is, but eminent in, domain is, in this is, context. You know, taking private property um, for, for this use of natural gas storage, which, you know, the law, the argument was, is this a public use? Can you Can we take your property because it's in the public good? And the court struck down that provision and said no. Um, a second provision was called sometimes called the doctor gag rule or the physician gag rule. This was a provision of the law which required medical professionals to sign a confidentiality agreement when they were trying to get information about possible chemical exposures from from um, fracking chemical fluids. Uh, and that was quite unpopular. It was challenged by a doctor. There was a third issue about how the public is to be notified when there's a spill or a pollution incident. The law explicitly said that the State Department of Environmental Protection has to notify public drinking water systems when there's a spill. But the groups challenging it said, hey, excuse me, that's not appropriate because there are three million people with private water wells in Pennsylvania, and they ought to be notified too, and the law doesn't explicitly say that. And most of those people live in the areas where there's shale drilling. So that was also an issue, and the, and the court agreed with them. And then there was an issue, this is a little, gets a little into the weeds, but the State Public Utility uh, Commission had the ability to review local zoning ordinances. So what I was talking about earlier when, you know, if a community enacted some kind of zoning that, you know, the gas industry didn't like and thought was unfriendly to them, they could challenge it and the and the PUC could actually withhold some of that impact fee money from a local community if they tried to um, do something with zoning that, you know, prevented oil and gas development. But that, because the original zoning stuff was thrown out, that section was also struck down this time around, too. So, you know, just what you described from last week, there are a few things there that uh, someone who didn't know anything about this but was familiar with Pennsylvania law, you used the example of a halfway house. Let's start with uh, the zoning. I mean, I remember the, the controversy at the time when that first ruling came out that, uh, you know, that local municipalities had no choice. They couldn't use zoning. Uh, and 
you know, so that is unprecedented, or at least it's much different. Is there any other law that you're aware of that exempts local municipalities from from doing something that uh, keeps something out of an area or in it that they can use in an area? Well, the issue with it was the court found this was unconstitutional because they said it constituted what's known as a special law, which you're not allowed to enact special laws that especially help, one, like in this case, one industry. Um, you know, again, the argument was other people don't have to play by these rules. Other people, other industries get zoned in certain areas. You have residential zones, you keep industry and industrial zones. I mean, why in this case was it that oil and gas has to go, you have to allow it in every zoning area? So that's what the court found. There was an issue with that in terms of, and other provisions made it a special law for the oil and gas industry. Also, in the 2013 case, it was really seen by um, environmental groups as a real affirmation of our state constitution's environmental rights amendment, which they often cite. And, you know, most people know about our federal constitution. We have, you know, the First Amendment, the right to free speech, and the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. But in our state constitution, we have a pretty remarkable um, environmental rights amendment, which guarantees people clean air, clean water. Um, So this was one of the the first times the court really in a in a very definite way said that really means something and that that has weight the other part I wanted to focus on was uh, eminent domain eminent domain is supposed to be used only in cases when public safety is involved or there's a project that will be for the public good so, okay, so the court struck down eminent domain to be able to... Related to natural gas storage. Right. So this is the underground injection of natural gas. So how would that relate to the public good? Well, the public uses gas, so we all yeah. use gas and they have to store it. Uh, so the argument, just like, you know, with the the pipeline argument we hear a lot uh, in this region as, as pipelines are developed, that people have been, they've also threatened to use eminent domain for pipelines. But uh, so understandably, people don't want that to happen on their private property. But again, we all use this resource. It heats our homes. We cook with it. And it powers the light bulb, you know, the electric power generation. So, I mean, certainly there's an argument to be made that uh, there is public good of, of, of pipelines and natural gas storage. But the question was, you know, in this instance, was this constitutional, and the court found that it was not. Mm. So if you could give a quick uh, kind of summary of what the court found last week of uh, just the highlights of what they struck down. Yeah, well, again, there was that natural gas storage issue for eminent domain. The Dr. Gag rule was tossed out. Um, The spill notification, they agreed with the groups challenging the law, saying that you, you don't just, it's inappropriate to just notify public drinking water systems. You also have to notify private well water systems uh, because, as I mentioned, most of the people who live in the in Marcel Shale and, uh, areas, they often have private water wells. But this has brought up a couple problems because what the court did last week was they actually threw out this, the whole chunks of these sections dealing with how physicians are to get um, medical information and how the public is to be notified when spills occur. So just for example, with the with the spill notification, they, they tossed out the whole section, meaning now there is actually no statutory requirement to notify anybody. Um, and they said 
they said in their decision that they were going to stay their decision for 180 days, so that about six months, so the legislature can craft remedial legislation to fix fix this issue. Um, but they didn't explicitly say what to do. Now, one could infer that what they're trying to say is, hey, legislature, you should now write the law so that private well water owners get notified, too. Um, but a problem. One of the problems with that is that Pennsylvania is one of the few states that has no regulations for private water wells. So, um, you know, the DEP uh, said that they already uh, try to notify people when there's a spill, and, and they already, you know, under other statutory authorities, they 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 try to make sure people are aware when there's a pollution institute an incident, but. At the same time, there really is no statewide accounting of where all these private wells are. You mentioned uh, the legislature having 180 days to enact uh, remedial legislation. Um, You had some quotes in your story uh, from not members of the legislature, but uh, some people speaking for the legislature. How did they react? Well, there was significant. Well, first of all, they're only the House and Senate are only in session together for six days before the end of this uh, year. So, you know, when I asked, "Are you going to take this up quickly and you know remediate the law?" They said, you know, one of them was like, "Oh heck no," <laughs> you know, they have a lot of other things going on, and it's just it's unclear whether they will do something or you know what they will do, if anything. And certainly, there's pushback uh, to regulating private water wells, because how do you get that done? How how expensive is it going to be? Will that be extra cost for property owners or or what have you? But I mean, certainly that's been a a big problem from day one of the gas industry is that the lack of regulation around private water wells. I mean, people could have certainly other problems going on in their water. um, And it really confused the whole issue at the beginning with gas development, whether it was a pre-existing condition or the gas industry. And that's the, the point you just brought up there. Uh, you know, we, we, we heard that uh, uh, often, maybe not here in the last year or so, but uh, that not knowing whether there were certain chemicals or, uh, you know, gases in a, in existing in a well before, uh, you know, a drill or a, uh, a well was located near that well. Yeah. And- a, a drilling well was located near that water well, I should say. Right. And so it was just a big issue at the beginning. And now because of the law, there's a lot more baseline testing going on. So people know what the conditions are before they even get going with anything. But it, it, certainly that's been a big issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I said in my introduction that uh, about not having regulations. Uh, here we are eight years in. We do have regulations. We do have regulations. They've but just some been have trying. been struck down. Well, they've been, no, what they've been trying to update the regulations since about 2011 because, as I mentioned, this new industry rolled into town and it it was a really game-changing thing for Pennsylvania. So ever since 2011, the DEP has been trying to modernize its regulatory package to go along with uh, the the legal changes in Act 13. So it's just been a really uh, drawn-out, controversial, kind of convoluted process to get some of these regulations updated. And actually, some of the Marcellus Shale regulations are supposed to take effect this Saturday. Yeah, talk about that, uh, because, you know, some of those regulations that haven't been in place were supposed to start this Saturday. Is there a question of whether they will? 
Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know. I still need to talk to DEP, hopefully today or tomorrow. But um, one of the trade groups representing oil and gas drillers uh, sent a letter out last Friday and, and has appealed um, a court case they're fighting over a provision of the law which requires, um, which gives protection to public resources. So, for example, this is like like if you wanted to put an oil and gas well near a park, um, the DEP says in its in its new forthcoming regulations that we're going to give extra, extra scrutiny to your well permit application if it's near a public resource. Well, this trade group's arguing, hey, because the state Supreme Court actually threw out that whole section of the law, that that doesn't apply anymore. So, actually, so one group is at least attempting to block the publication of the new rules. Mm. Um, got a, a comment here says um, and this is someone says about Marie being predisposed to the gas industry that's what she covers and she, this is not her opinion here she, this is what she covers so she says we don't need support their cause we should be promoting solar power I mean the bottom line is that both exist in this state and have to be regulated Right. And I have to say oh, uh, to that person specifically, I, I cover the gas industry closely. I, I um, get certainly I get notes, um, some some nice notes, but I get notes from all kinds of people on all sides of the issue uh, who definitely feel like um, their views aren't aren't being supported. Or, or, or I, I mean, I certainly get complaints and praise from both sides. Well, depending on the story, I I don't know. I mean, really, what I'm trying to do here is just explain what happened with the court decision. Right, and that's exactly what she's doing here. It's not, uh, you know, supporting one or or the other. Um, There, there are a lot of different things that uh, we have to talk about as part of, uh, as part of the energy economy. Uh, So, getting back to the parks uh, thing, you know, I want to make that clear that uh, when you say the section of the law. There are a lot of different things in, not all of them, but a lot of different uh, aspects to this regulations in a section. And when the court throws out a whole section, everything goes with it, including this thing with parks and public land. Yeah. And the issue with that was when this decision came down, um, the reason the reason it was challenged was because it said that gas wells have to have certain setback requirements from like streams and wetlands you know you can't build them right up next next to a stream but then there was a section that said the state department of environmental protection shall waive these setback requirements if the drilling company gives it a plan saying how we're going to mitigate this issue and so the court said, you know, that the groups challenging the law said these were just such minimal, flimsy little setbacks that they, you know, uh, they they shouldn't be in place and they shouldn't have this waiver. I mean, why why have setbacks if you have a waiver? But um, indeed, the the part of the law right after that that talked about protecting public resources such as parks also was tossed out. So at the time, I remember, you know, Governor Tom Corbett's administration was like. Hey, Supreme Court, you're you're also throwing out the window these other important public resource protections that are in there, and so certainly that has now, you know, years later, it's it's come up again. It's an issue again because as the DEP tries to implement its new regulations, it's trying to say, hey, we can give public resources extra protections, and the industry's like, um, no, you can't because the court threw that out.
Mm. Uh, Marie Cusick uh, covers uh, Pennsylvania's energy economy as part of State Impact Pennsylvania. It's uh, in cooperation with WHYY and WITF in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, uh, folks, I'll tell me, and we were talking about this earlier, anything you want to know about Pennsylvania's energy economy, it is on the State Impact page, and uh, Marie just does a fantastic job with covering that. Go to State Impact Pennsylvania under WITF.org. Marie, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. It is WITF's fall fundraising campaign. I'm joined by WITF's multimedia news director, Tim Lambert. Tim, welcome back. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. And it is our fall fundraising campaign, and we have a goal of $500 that we're trying to reach in the next five minutes. It's up to you to make that call. Help us reach the goal with that contribution of $5 a month, maybe $10 a month, $20 a month, a dollar a day. Uh, make that call at 1-800-233-9483 or go online to WITF.org. And we'd like to thank Jane from Dillsburg making a contribution right now. And uh, you can be next on the call. Make that uh, contribution at WITF.org. So, uh, Tim, you know, we were just talking about uh, the gas industry and state impact mm-hmm. uh, Pennsylvania. It's not just the gas industry, but all of uh, Pennsylvania's energy economy. That's right. Coal but, and uh, solar. And... Right. But I wanted to point out also, WITF, we have desk. We have reporters covering certain areas of the state, and by areas, I don't mean geography. I'm talking about Keystone Crossroads, uh, talking about transforming health. Talk a little bit about those and why they're so valuable. Well, again, we've talked about uh, resources, and all media organizations are strapped. So what we have done is we've taken a strategy of covering certain issues we feel that have been underreported in Pennsylvania, the gas industry and the energy economy being one of them, uh, having a dedicated desk, State Impact Pennsylvania, to cover this issue, to uh, be able to send a reporter to Pittsburgh and the Shale Insight Conference to get an idea of of what the industry was talking about, Uh, send a reporter to Bradford County to talk about why people are so upset at how the royalties are not being handled by a a few uh, drilling companies. Keystone Crossroads, uh, cities across the state have faced challenges for 30 to 40 years. I mean, this isn't a new phenomenon. I grew up in western Pennsylvania, saw the end of the steel industry in the 80s. Uh, And uh, these cities, in some cases, have been just crumbling since then. And and struggling to, to find its footing in the new economy. And uh, so State Impact of Pennsylvania and Keystone Crossroads, especially taking a look at those issues and trying to tie in why those communities um, may be struggling and what some are doing to, to find their way back. And uh, that project's now entering its third year. And uh, we have a great partnership with WHYY in Philadelphia, WESA in Pittsburgh, and WPSU in State College. Just an example of how we are working together to provide the best coverage we can, transforming health. Uh, Another uh, uh, example of what we try to do to focus on those health issues uh, in a changing uh, health landscape that that, uh, has been underreported. You know, whenever you're here, I feel that we have to talk about big picture because uh, you are uh, the news director for mm-hmm. WITF and uh, you oversee many of those of those things. And but one of the reasons that we do come to you and and uh, you know ask for a, a contribution, but also remind you of the value. The, the things that WITF does provide to you every day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, you know, I can go on and on about the changing media landscape and the challenges and pressures we face every day to continue not only uh, with the current service, but growing the service. And it all depends on you supporting what we do to make sure that uh, we remain strong and we're able to keep pushing the boundaries of, of covering uh, issues important to you. And we hope you uh, 
appreciate that. And we hope you will make a financial contribution and support what we do each and every day by going to WITF.org. We'd like to thank Elizabeth Frown from Ephrata. Uh, getting close to that goal of $500 for the hour, 1-800-233-9483. Tim, thank you very much for joining us today. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's Smart Talk, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We're going to look at it from a, a little bit of a different point of view, uh, from the man's point of view of breast cancer awareness. Real men wear pink. Also, an economist talking about uh, Pennsylvania's economy, the economy overall on tomorrow's program.